Good morning, UCC. Hey, everything worked this morning, so that's a miracle in and of itself. Um, welcome to Uptown Community Church, our, our online service. And I just want to say hello to all the people who are visiting. Um, I've been made aware over the last couple of weeks that we have people who have joined our service who've never actually been to our physical uh, gathering when that was a thing. So I want to say welcome to everyone who's watching, whether now or at a later date. And don't forget, um, the stream is live right now, but if you miss the live stream, just say, for example, next week, week after, um, you can watch the sermon and the entire service on our UCC Waterloo we- uh, website as well, too. We'll have the sermon up there as well. So just in case you miss it or, you know, the Internet crashes or, or you know, zombies attack or Godzilla, I don't know, the, whatever calamity the world wants to throw us for 2021, It'll be up over there. Well, we're going to continue on our series. We started last week on First John, but let's just recap what we talked about last week. So remember, we talked about the letter of John, uh, and what's interesting about John's letter is, is that his letter is written, his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are written at a point in time when all the other apostles are dead. Right, So the Diocletian and Neronian purges have, have pretty much wiped out the initial eyewitnesses of Jesus. So what's interesting about John's letter is, is he is writing to an audience, he's writing to readers who were not eyewitnesses to Jesus. Now, I think that's very unique in regards because... It, it actually speaks to who we are today and what we're wrestling with. Um, and so if, if, if I said to you... Um, I remember seeing this band play live, right? So there can be people who uh, were at Woodstock, for example, and you saw Jimi Hendrix play live. And, and you're trying to tell your kids about seeing Jimi Hendrix play live. Now, your kids can listen to Jimi Hendrix um, music. They can listen to the songs. But, you know, the, the live experience is completely different. Or if you've ever met somebody famous, but you get the idea. When you are retelling a second, uh, a first-hand encounter to somebody else, um, there is something that can be lost in translation, but there also can be something that may be lost in emphasis as well, too. We said that last week that there are basically two themes of First John. The first theme is that Jesus is real, and this is written to the second generation of, of believers. But the other thing, too, is Jesus is true, and this is the whole idea of Gnosticism. And we talked uh, a little bit about that last week, and we're going to unpack that in the next couple of weeks. But simply put, Gnosticism was this... Um, this viewpoint that also emerged as well, too, that there were Jesus's secret teachings or there's different ways of kind of experiencing Jesus. And what John was trying to write to these people is that this is not true, right? And also, remember, uh, somebody who has had a firsthand experience of something has a very unique viewpoint, but it also means, too, that their voice is actually, it deserves to be heard. Right? And so John's voice deserves to be heard, especially to a group of people who have never actually seen Jesus, spoke with Jesus, interact with, interacted with Jesus. And we looked at John's life, right? Remember we looked at John's life where he was given the nickname Son of Thunder, right? Son of Thunder, and there's a whole bunch of implications to that, that he was kind of a hothead. And we saw that, right, when he wanted to burn down a Samaritan village, right? But he goes from Son of Thunder to the Apostle of Love. Right, and only an interaction with Jesus can do that. Only uh, a first-hand account with Jesus can actually transform somebody like that. And so, um, I, I would say to you, I would, I would, I would kind of, um, I would propose to you that 
John's letter is as important today as it was when he wrote it back around 90, well, actually about uh, 86 AD uh, approximately. Now, the reason I think that is because he's writing to a group of people who have never seen Jesus, and we are that group of people that never saw Jesus. Remember I showed you last week that since Jesus walked on this earth, between 80 to 101, depending on how you define generations, have passed since the time of Jesus. And so here we are, you know, multi-generations after Jesus in this lockdown, in this pandemic, in this postmodern Western culture and whatever labels you want to put to it. And, and the reality is, is we can have a hard time experiencing Jesus now, right? We can mythologize Jesus. We can make Jesus uh, just basically uh, someone who has uh, teachings or uh, the miraculous. And, and wh- whichever way we wrestle with Jesus, we're kind of going through what John uh, was trying to write to back then. And so this is why John's letter is as important to us as it was back then. We're going to continue on this morning. We're actually going to basically look at chapter one because chapter one is, is kind of uh, short. But before we do that, I want to show you an article that I came across by a guy named David Kinneman. David Kinneman is a researcher with the Barna Group. Now, for those of you who have grown up within Christianity, the Barna Group was this group is, is this group that exists right now. And what they do is they do surveys. And they kind of get the state of evangelicalism and Christianity in America, but also globally, North America and, and whatnot. So David Kinneman wrote this book. It's called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. A really important book. So what churches have realized for the last uh, 25 years, maybe 30 years, is that there is this growing exodus, leaving of people of a certain age group amongst churches. You know, Uptown Community Church, and especially for those who have just joined us online who've never actually been to our church service, one of the things I love so much about Uptown Community Church is we have so many young people with us, university students, because we're right down the street, well, when we were right down the street at the Princess Twin Cinema, uh, we had so many university students with us, and we loved that. And the reason we loved that was because we saw young people engaging with faith, and Uptown Community Church has always been a place where you can ask difficult questions and just simply voice your doubts about faith because that's really the authenticity that we really kind of strive for. Well, David Kinnaman wrote this book based upon uh, years of research in regards to why is it young people leave the church, and this is what he said. The next generation is caught up between two possible destinies, one moored by the power and depth of the Jesus-centered gospel and one anchored to the, and I love this, cheap Americanized version of this historical faith that will snap at the slightest puff of wind. Without a clear path to pursue the true gospel, millions of young Christians will look back on their 20-something years as a series of lost opportunities for Christ. See, what's happened is Western Christianity has really presented this plastic version of, of Christianity. Right? And we talk about it at UCC. Matter of fact, when we did have this thing called the update or our bulletin, at the very top right-hand corner in our bulletin was this little phrase that I wrote basically when I started UCC seven years ago. Seven years ago, my goodness. So it was this phrase that basically said, welcome to UCC. Thanks so much for gathering with us. We're not here to entertain you, and you are not an audience. And, and the idea behind that is Western Christianity has become a performance. Right? Church is no longer... Uh, 
about some churches no longer preach the gospel or even emphasize the word. It's more about the spectacle, the lights, the cameras, the beautiful people on stage singing perfectly with the best musicians and, and the lighting and, and the props and, and the background and, and all that. Right? That's what church has become. And then just you know, there's like, you know, a kid's playland, a McDonald's drive through Starbucks, I don't even know, right? But the point is, is that what David Kinman is saying is that this cheap Americanized version or plastic version of faith is actually done the exact opposite with 20-somethings. Now, the cheap Americanized version, it appeals to the builders and boomers, right? And again, remember, there's five generations that are kind of in the church today, right? Builders, boomers, Xers, millennials, Zetters, uh, or IY, depending on which way you want to look at it. And they all have different values. Well, the church has really much, has been offset towards the older generations, the builders and the boomers. That's why the buildings were really important, right? To the boomers and builders, buildings, programs are really, really uh, a high value for them. Well, millennials and Zetters, Xers like me were caught in the middle. We're like the middle child of the generations. But the younger generations look at this and say, well, why would we spend $7 million updating our building? Why would we spend $2 million updating our, our building when we could be using that money to help the poor, to, to do ministries here? And that's actually great questions, right? And so what David Kinman has realized is that this is actually pushing a different generation out the door. He goes on to say this. The dropout problem touches countless students, parents, and faith leaders, but many of these have only a vague grasp of what exactly the dropout phenomena is. The first step in the discovery process is to understand two simple facts. Teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans. American 20-somethings are the least religiously active. So what's interesting is, is that there is this idea out there that everyone's an atheist. That's actually not true, right? That's actually not true. What's out there is people are are, are um, agnostic, and the idea behind agnosticism is that there's something out there, but I don't know what it is. And what that I don't know what it is, is I'm going to create my own religion or my own faith system. So the traditional church or the institutional church has been repugnant to younger generations, and th there's a variety of reasons, right? Scandal, um, resources, you know, all these kind of things. And again, these are valid concerns, right? So what they look at, they say, well, is this really what's important about the gospel? And so they're asking these questions. And what's interesting is that everyone is still spiritual. Like, remember, humanity is created in God's image. So that craving for the, the transcendent is a part of who we are. And finally, he says this. Um, we are at a critical point in the life of the North American church. The Christian community must rethink our efforts to make disciples. Many of the assumptions on which we have built our work with young people are rooted in modern mechani uh, mechanistic and mass production paradigms. Some, though not all, ministries have taken cues from the assembly line, doing everything possible to streamline the manufacture of shiny new Jesus followers fresh from the factory floor. Uh, floor. But disciples cannot be mass produced. And this is what I love here. Disciples are handmade one relationship at a time. See, the church has been so interested in regards to getting people in, and we will do anything to get in, uh, people in. And just understand something. Pastors have an invested interest for that, right? Because the, the, the larger the church, the more resources, the, the, and again, there's ego and all that involved, but that's a whole different conversation. But that's, that's how we've kind of, we've, we've, we've designed church, right? Uh, another guy, 
Uh, Michael Lee says it this way, and I think he kind of hits the nail on the head as well too. Unfortunately, while evangelicals are understandably and justifiably preoccupied with bringing people through the front door of the church, too many seem relatively inattentive and uninformed as to how and why people are leaving through the back door. Just, just think about that for a second, right? The church has been designed to get people to come in, right, to be converts, to be passive audiences in a church building Sunday morning. And this is where the pandemic, the lockdowns, have really made Christians reassess their faith and, and how they view church. And pastors um, have, are trying to navigate this, and I think some pastors are doing a great job, and I think some pastors are not doing such a great job. But it's, we're all trying to ask ourselves this question. If we don't meet Sunday morning in a physical setting, Right? What does our faith look like? And that's the conversation uh, we've been having online for the, almost the last year. Can you believe it? In March this year, it'll be a year since we've been in this predicament. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how and why are people leaving? Now, just so you know, John is asking the same question in his letter. He's writing to a second generation who didn't see Jesus, didn't interact with Paul the Apostle, didn't see Peter, didn't see any of that, right? Remember, the first generation is almost all wiped out, and John is left. And John is pleading to this next generation of the church, and he's saying, listen, let me help you to understand who this Jesus is, right? Which, again, should be comforting and horrifying to us to think that even after the second generation of believers... Um, are wrestling with their faith, right? It's a, it seems like it's part of the human condition. So here's, here's the question we need to ask ourselves over the series, right? Either Jesus was who he said he was and can only do what is in his divine power to do, or the Jesus people follow or believe in is not the person of Scripture. See, what John is going to do, and we're going to see this today, especially in the, in the first part of 1 John, is John is going to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? And that is actually the fundamental, the crux of everything we're going to talk about and everything we believe. Who is Jesus to us? Is Jesus an idea? Is he a myth? Is he a quaint uh, concept we have? Is Jesus a great teacher? And again, many a Christian thinker and atheistic uh, thinkers have asked this question, who was this Jesus? Historically, theologically, uh, narratively, right? All these questions are asking with Jesus. And John is going to actually help us to kind of narrow that down this morning. He's going to challenge us, but let's get to that. So if you have your Bibles, also, by the way, on this new uh, online platform that we're using, um, on, the, on the, I think, top left corner there, and again, I can't remember exactly where, but there's a Bible part. You can, you can click the Bible, and you can actually pull up the scriptures if in case you want to, or you can you can be old school and crack open a Bible, but if you want to, turn your Bibles or open up your apps to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. It's only nine verses, so relax. Or, sorry, ten verses, so relax. Uh, but it's, it's actually important. This is going to be the foundation of where John is going to take us. Now, let's take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Now, what's going to happen here is John is going to parallel his letter with his gospel, right? Because remember, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, in the beginning was the word uh, that already existed, right? Now, remember, John's gospel is unique. We've told you this before, right? John's gospel, it just skips over the Christmas story, right? 
John's gospel just simply skips over the Christmas story, and he starts off with a very Greek way. Now, remember, I said to you that, that John's gospel, right? So Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews. Mark's gospel, which is Peter's gospel, is written to the persecuted church. That's the emphasis of, of, of uh, Mark's gospel is the suffering. Luke's gospel is written to the Gentiles, right? Because Luke is giving us an orderly account of Jesus' life. John's gospel is actually written to the Greeks, and this is why John's gospel starts off with this idea of word. Now, the word that John uses is a word called logos. And I've, I've, I've hinted at this before, but I want to share with you a little bit this morning. And we're just going to honestly scrape the surface. But why John uses the word logos to describe who Jesus is. Now, what's interesting about the word logos is it actually has a history. Right? John uses it, but he doesn't actually create it. He's actually borrowing from about 500 years of, of, of Greek philosophical thought. So the term has been used with various meaning by ancient philosophers since 500 BC. So actually, that may be even 1,500 years before uh, John used it. Right? They began to adopt the word, and, and it's used to signify that which gives shape, form, or life to the material universe. So Greek philosophers use the word logos to de describe creation. And not just creation, but the creative force to create creation. And just stick with me here. Your head's going to hurt in a second. Because logos is actually more like quantum physics than it is philosophy. Because logos to the, to the Greek thinker was this idea of saying, okay, how does the world begin, right? And it, the world begins with this idea of reason and thought. And we'll see that in a second. This is what logos meant to Heraclitus, Sophists, Plato, and Aristotle, right? So Plato and Aristotle... Greek thinkers used logos to try, try to describe how they saw the world. Let me give you a, a, a deeper definition of logos. Logos means in classical Greek both reason and word. The translation thought is probably the best equivalent for the Greek term since it indicates on the one hand the faculty of reason or the thought inwardly conceived in the mind and on the other hand the thought outwardly expressed through the vehicle of language. Okay. Let me explain that to you. Logos was to think of something, but not just to think about it as in deep thoughts, but to actually express it, right? But because logos was too big of a word for a human being, it actually became a word used for the divine. Remember, the Greeks were very spiritual. They had multiple gods, right? And so, for example, the the highest deity to the Greek was this person named Zeus. And, you know, for those of you who have seen really bad movies or, or thought of this, Zeus had logos, right? Zeus thought of the world and he created it. So when John uses the word logos to describe Jesus, what he's really saying is a human being cannot encapsulate logos, only something divine. But Jesus is both human and divine. The Greek word logos has been used with a certain degree of agreement by a series of thinkings to express the def the, and define the nature and form of God's revelation. Dr. John Kessler says this, Consequently, John's theology of logos is incarnational. Jesus did not merely reveal the Father as a theological construct. Instead, he put a face on God. Jesus shows us what God is like in human terms. Forgive me. It's, it's deep and it's, and it's, uh, it, it's kind of heady here, but re understand something. For the world, there are two worlds. Again, in the ancient world, they were the divine, the supernatural, the unseen, and then there was the physical world, right? Things you could see, right? 
Plato said that the unseen world was good, the spiritual world was good, and the seen world, which is a disease and violence and pestilence, that's bad, right? And we kind of go, okay. But Jesus comes along, and he actually is this hybrid, right? He is both divine and he is human, right? He is both unseen and seen. This is why John says about Jesus, he's the Logos, right? Because he encapsulates Logos. No human being can ever encapsulate Logos because it's too big a term. But just understand what John's theology of Jesus is right now. That Jesus, this person who walked amongst us thousands of years ago, who did the miraculous, he just wasn't a human being, right? He was divine as well, too. I've, I had this conversation with this atheist um, a while back, and he said to me that he liked Jesus as a philosophical teacher. As a matter of fact, he said to me that he meditates on and he thinks about the Beatitudes, right? Because he's, he finds that these are really uh, great truest statements. And he then challenged me. He said, and Jesus never identifies himself as divine. He says that was something that the church, the Catholic church did 300 years later. I said to him as gently as I could, you need to read your Bible, which of course he's like, I did. No, no. So I went through with scriptures with him. I showed how Jesus identified himself as divine, right? But remember, Jesus didn't come to this earth to say, hey, I'm God, do what I say. But instead he came as a human to convince us about who God was, right? This is why Jesus said, I am the image of God, right? Um, I and the Father are one, right? These statements are statements of divinity, Right? So I, after this conversation, the atheist said to me, I didn't realize this. I'm going to go back and think about it. And, and that's fine. Right? I just want you, I just wanted him to first accept the claims Jesus makes about himself, the claims that John first eyewitnesses a claim about himself. So the first thing that John wants people to know in his gospel and his letter is Jesus is the Logos. Now to us Gentiles, to us uh, non-Greek thinkers, that doesn't mean anything. But to the ancient world, to call a human being Logos was implying that this individual was divine. But not just divine, but this, this, this individual had the ability to create creation. Right? That's what Logos meant. Um, now, let's go on here. Uh, so, this word create is, 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 is part and parcel to Logos. And I want you to make a tab in your mind about this. If you're taking notes... Um, and why aren't you taking notes? But just write down creation creates equals logos. Because as John is going to go through this chapter, this is going to be very important because he's going to make a statement at the end of the chapter that only ties into this. But spoiler alert, I'm not going to give it away yet. We have to kind of get there. Let's take a look at verse 2. Look what John says in verse 2. This one who is the life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed. It seems to John that anyone who's truly met Jesus can't help but proclaim him. You know, Christians wrestle with this idea of sharing Jesus in a culture today that doesn't recognize Jesus, and that's fine. We have to th rethink how we talk about Jesus. But simply put, if we've really encountered the Logos, this Jesus, something has to well up within us to share that with somebody. And, and what is interesting is, is as we are in the midst of this, this mess of the world right now, 
I feel like people need to know this Jesus is Logos, right? That this Jesus is divine, that this Jesus is here and he is part of, he walks with us in this kind of, again, mess of a world that we're living through right now, right? This is our opportunity. Because now look at verse three here. Look, look how he's gonna start at verse three. Again, if you look back, if you, if you circle in 1 John, how many times he says proclaim or testify, it's going to add up. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. So now here's the invitation, right? John is saying, I understand second generation Christians that you didn't see Jesus. I understand second generations that you have heard about Jesus. I've actually seen him. I've actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, experienced his ministry and, and, and the resurrection. I experienced the miraculous. I experienced heartbreak when he hung upon the cross. I experienced these. So this is my witness to you. But now look what he's saying here, right? We have actually seen and heard that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship. So fellowship is this concept that John is trying to invite, right? So even though second generations, you haven't seen Jesus, you haven't experienced Jesus, you can still believe in Jesus, right? You can still have knowledge of Jesus through the gospel accounts and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit serves two functions, right? The first function is to convict, right? So those who are not yet Christ followers, those who have not yet accepted Jesus, the Spirit is out there convicting us of, of that aspect of our lives, right? But the second role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus to us, right? We talked about this last week, that the Spirit, the, the Logos without Spirit is just dead. It's just religion, right? Jesus is alive because the Spirit makes him alive. And that's the invitation that John is giving to these next generations. He says, listen, I know it's hard for you to believe. I know that you wrestle with this stuff that you hear about. But let me tell you, when you place your trust in Jesus, that trust is not unfounded. That trust isn't um, there. Look, now, look at this here. In the first four verses, John uses eight images of Jesus as tactile and real. Now, tactile means touch, right? Taste, touch, sense, smell, like all of these, right? Like John is saying, listen, Jesus isn't a myth. He's not an abstraction. He's not like the Greek philosophers talking about Zeus and Athena or, 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 or the, uh, uh, the Canaanite religions of Baal and Asherah. Jesus is real. Jesus is real. I saw him die. I saw him alive again. I ate food with him. I saw him eat, right? That's as real as you can possibly get. And because he is real, we are shown God's version of life because John says this, right? The word of life, the life appeared, eternal life. If we understand this concept of the logos, if we accept this as fellowship, then what we see then is the life that God intended. See, the kingdom of heaven, this thing that Jesus kept proclaiming to us, was a new way of looking at life right? If the kingdom of heaven was this invitation to the lost, to the broken, to the hurting, to the anxious, to the depressed. And again, whatever words you want to apply there. A again, not just that one apart, but the rich, the affluent, every aspect of culture is an invitation to the kingdom of heaven, to what real life looks like. Now, all of this is really important to the next phase, right? Because the next phase, John is going to make a statement that you wrestle with and I wrestle with. 
John is going to get to the very core of our problem with God. And I'll I, I unpack in a second. The second generations of believers need to know that Jesus wasn't an idea or myth created by their parents. You know, as a youth pastor for t- 20 years, I have heard parents so frustrated about trying to convince their kids that Jesus is real or that their faith is true. And the things I used to say to them is that as much as you want to proclaim or tell them, what really reveals Jesus as true is how you live your life. Is Sunday morning when we are able to gather this time of community and and fellowship, is that of vital importance to you? Or does hockey practice or does sleeping in or does vacations or does other things distract from that? You know, what we value expresses what we think is true to our children. And this is a very uncomfortable conversation with parents. I've had this uncomfortable conversation with parents way more than I care to admit. But simply put, what kids want to know is true. What they want to know is important is lived out by what we express as important. If you said to your children, no matter what happens Sunday morning, we are going to be in church together. Now, if you have teenagers or you have younger children, I know. Waking them up in the morning, getting them out of the bed, trying to get them in the car, you know, with their hair combed, um, you know, with a misery. I understand all that. Trust me, I, I've lived through it myself. But what it says to your children is, no matter what happens, this gathering, no matter if I understand or not, it has value and importance. And nothing cuts into it. On top of that, if you serve and if you, if you actually financially give, you know, financial giving to your children, seeing, them, seeing, them, seeing you do that, says to them, not only is God important in my heart, but there's an expression of that that happens in a way that is shown that I'm going to take my resources and give them to God through this community of believers. And again, a whole host of things, right? So John is saying this to the second generation because he wants them to understand this. Now look what he's going to say here, the... Uh, verses 5 to (coughs) 7. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with him, with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses them all from righteousness. And remember, Look at the parallel in in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 9. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, is coming to the world. John loves using metaphors to describe Jesus. Light and darkness is one of his favorites. Now, the reason that's so important is right now, uh, we take light for granted. You know, and I don't know if you ever thought about that, but light is something that we just assume will happen. You walk into your house, you flip a switch, and light comes on. I go out to, to walk Rosie at night, and there's street lights on, right? But have you ever gone camping? You ever been in a power outage, right? I remember a number of years ago, uh, there was that powder outage that happened in Ontario for uh, actually a lot more than Ontario, but it was a couple of days. Remember how eerie and spooky that was, that there was no light? That you would look out your window and there's no light at all? It can be kind of alarming for people, and and rightfully so, right? The darkness to the ancient world was this, it had a menace to it because you didn't know what was in the dark, right? You didn't know what was out there. You didn't know who was out there. You didn't know what was out there. And so the dark gave uh, rise to the imaginations, right? And again, if you've ever gone camping, right? 
Like, I mean real camping, not like, you know, like a trailer camping, but I mean like a tent camping, you know, in Killarney or, or something like that, right? The dark is there. But you know what's so interesting about the dark? Is that the light seems so much more important. And again, you know this, right? You ever had a fire? You, have your, you, know, you had your, uh, your tents facing the fire? The fire gives off this warm glow, and, and, and not just a warm glow, but actually warmth as well, too. And we gather around the fire. But remember, the fire is only as bright because the dark is so dark. Well, John is saying that Jesus is light. And the image he wants us to understand is, without this light, we are just groping in the darkness trying to find our way. Right? We are just trying to navigate our way in the dark uh, to just anything. And again, turn off the lights and try to walk around your room. How many times will you stub your toe, trip over something, and fall into something? But just have a bit of light, whether it's your phone flashlight or, or whatever it would be. It's like, oh, you can see. Well, that's what Jesus is to John. He's a light by which he navigates his life. And again, in, in the second part is a challenge as well, too. Here's a challenge. Are you living in the truth, which is light to John, or are you living in a lie, which is darkness? Now, we prove this by our beliefs and behavior. I love the phrase that John uses, practicing truth. See, truth has become this concept of just, I think, the true things, right? This is my true thought. But John actually says you have to practice the truth. In other words, if it is true, then you live your life by it. But that's the logos. That's John. Now, here we get to the controversial statement at the end here. Look at verse 8 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. One of the concepts that John is going to use throughout this book, uh, the first letter is self-deception. And what's interesting about self-deception is sometimes we don't realize we're deceiving ourselves. You know, it's like having a scale. And you step on the scale, and the scale tells you your weight, whether you like it or not. Right? It'd be funny to have a scale that's like, hey, wha what do you feel like today? And you tell the scale the weight you want, and you step on the scale, and it tells you exactly what you want to hear. Defeats the purpose of a scale, but makes us feel great about ourselves. Well, John is using the same kind of concept. Right? Self-deception is a place that we can live without realizing it. Look what he says. If we claim to be without sin. Now, I would propose to you that I think most people actually have this idea of sin in them. Right? Sin, and again, the language you use to describe sin, brokenness, darkness, uh, deadness. Right? I think our culture understands this quite well. Because as we look at the public discourse, as we look at the world kind of fragmenting and, and getting angrier and protests and all that, right? It's just wrestling with this, what is broken in us individually and corporately, right? But look what he says. We deceive ourselves. All John wants the second generation to know is this. You just have to admit the darkness is there because God knows it. But your self-deception will actually hide this from you. For those who've been part of Screw Tape Letters on Tuesday and their Thursday group, by the way, if you'd like to join our Screw Tape Letters, we have space. But C.S. Lewis, in chapter 8 of the Screw Tape Letters, it was all about this idea of sin as a mask, right? And what C.S. Lewis says is, 
suffering and pain removes that mask of sin, right? Well, then look at the statement here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me show you something here. For John, truth and the word are connected. He takes these two concepts and he bookends them with this if we confess our sins. Because here's what the second generation deals with. Here's what you deal with. Here's what I deal with. Um, can God forgive me? I don't know if there's a single question asked more of me as a pastor than this one. Can God forgive me? See, the enemy, the devil, he loves reminding us of our sins, of our past, of the decisions we've made to, to ruin our lives or the decision of other people to ruin our lives. And so he whispers us to us constantly about our past, about our brokenness. And, and the question he asks us, can God really love you? You ever wrestled with a sin that is habitual, that is constant? I think if you're a human being and you exhale carbon dioxide, the answer is yes, we all do. And what the enemy's best tool to break us down is, is to say to us, to remind us of that. Because if we're reminded of our sin, then we don't want to get close to God, right? We don't want to draw close to God because that's like, like, like drawing towards light. There's darkness in us, and the darkness hates the light. This is exactly what subsequent generations would struggle with. Eyewitnesses would accept this more readily because they saw the reality of this in Jesus' ministry. But for us, it seems too good to be true. See, for those of us displaced from what Jesus actually did, we doubt it because we ask ourselves, how can God forgive us? But when we look at Jesus' ministry, we read through the Gospels, the type of Jesus, the type of people Jesus encountered, we wouldn't doubt it. Romans, who the Jews hated. Samaritans, who the Jews hated. Prostitutes, tax collectors, violent people, adulterers, uh, the sexually promiscuous, the spiritually dead, the, uh, the demon-possessed. I don't think all of you are demon-possessed. A couple of you, I suspect, but uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think you are. But the fact is that Jesus encountered all these people. And his consistent response was always to invite them to who Jesus was. And one of the things I think is, is that what we need to realize is this idea of forgiveness is part and parcel to our self-identity. I came across this great study. Uh, I want to share it with you. And the study's title was Divine Forgiveness May Improve Mental Health. Now look what uh, Dr. Frank uh, Fincham says. Experiencing divine forgiveness is important to self-forgiveness, which in turn impacts the quality of our relationships as well as our mental health and well-being. Professors uh, Frank D. Fitchin and Ross uh, W. May of Florida State University have presented preliminary evidence that feeling forgiven by God is associated with fewer depressive symptoms in a sample of healthy emerging adults. So what they did was, is they asked the question, how are you able to forgive yourself like, how do you do that? Now, it seems like a simple question, but I think all of you who are listening to this, whether now or a later date, you know the difficulty of this. 
Self-forgiveness is almost one of the most difficult concepts today. But what's also interesting is it's also a, met a metric of uh, well-being, of mental health, of, of healthy uh, mental health issues. But what Dr. F uh, Fincham, and I think rightfully so did, was he realized that having a transcendent understanding, a divine understanding of forgiveness is going to help us to forgive ourselves. Now, he, let, me, let me show you what it goes on to say. Um, this oversight, not, uh, notwithstanding, forgiveness is deeply rooted in religious teaching. Developing a better understanding of divine forgiveness can substantially enrich our grasp of how, when, and why people forgive. Considering the link between ability to forgive and quality of life, these insights could in turn translate into effective strategies for improving and maintaining good health. One of my biggest complaints about the mental health industries is its lack of acknowledgement of the spiritual capacity of human beings. This is why when people ask me about counselors, I always send them to a Christian counselor because at least a Christian counselor will acknowledge the fact that we are spiritual beings. Now, that's not to say like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'm a big fan about, or the other ones are, are, are not as effective. But a counselor who uses CBT and understanding the spiritual aspects of who we are, I think the outcomes are doubly effective. But what Dr. Fincham is saying is this. If you believe God can forgive you, then you are more likely to forgive yourself. I had this aha moment this week about this idea of forgiveness. You know, you, you know what I find is when you study the Bible, and I mean really intently study it, you, you really can't have, you can't really escape the aha moments. And just so you know, a, a pastor of, uh, I don't even know anymore, 26 years, 27 years, preaching since I was 16. By the way, that sermon was terrible, but you get the idea. I'm still learning. I love the Bible for that reason, that no matter how long I study it, I'm still learning. And so as I'm reading this, I had this aha moment, right? We've been given a divine gift, but I don't think we realize it or live it. We have detached the gift truth from the person, right? Think, think about this for a second. John starts off his letter with the logos, but he gets to the end of the chapter and he's talking about forgiveness. So it looks like this for me. When we look at the main theme of the first chapter is this. He starts off with divinity, word, and creation, right? Which is what logos is. He gets to the decision, right? Fellowship, uh, light and dark, life. But look where he ends off. Deception and faith. And now well, here's what the thing. Faith is the ability to ask for forgiveness. Now, what you need, to, you need to understand is this doesn't happen. And by this, I mean this doesn't happen without this. See, I believe that we have a small view of who Jesus is. I think we have a small view of who our God is. This is why people can say things like, how can God forgive me a thousand times when I do this sin a thousand times? Because what they're really saying is, my God is only as big as the thousand times sin. And what I really want you to understand is, God is bigger than your thousand times sin. And what you need to do is take God out of this little forgiveness box you've placed him in, and allow this God to be the God of the scriptures, which is the transcendent God. If God says, I hold the universe in my hands, and again, I, I can't even tell you about how that looks like as far as size goes. But if God says, I, can, I hold the universe in my hand, do you really believe that God gets tripped up when you sin? Now, 
please take what I'm about to say in the nicest way possible. And by the way, in a relationship, whenever anybody says that, it's always bad news. But I suspect, though, that there might be a subtle narcissism equated with this. It's almost as if we think we're so important that God can't forgive us. I just want you to know something. Humility is the key to unlocking God's grace. Coming to God and asking forgiveness is an act of, of, of humility. And in that act of humility, you receive God's forgiveness and his grace. The reason John starts off with divinity is because he has to end off here. But he can't start off here because this seems too good to be true. And the aha moment I had was, is what this idea of forgiveness looks like. And this is my definition. I don't even know if it's great or not, but this is what I wrote down in my notes. Forgiveness is the intentional seeking of a restored, active relationship. See, what does John say? You deceive yourself if you think there's nothing broken within you. That's self-deception. What is authentic and true is saying to God, God, I wrestle with this. And you know what? It'd be so nice to wrestle with only one thing. <laughs> Most of us, we wrestle with so many different things. And God doesn't look at us and say, you know what? I didn't realize, you know, I didn't realize you had that in you. Right? There's this, there's this concept called the imposter syndrome. And for anybody who's worked in any level of industry, whether it's a nurse or a pastor or, or somebody, something else, there's this idea of imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome simply states that at some point in time, we don't feel like we're actually qualified to do what we do. And as a pastor, I feel that all the time. I don't feel qualified to be your pastor. Um, sorry. But I don't. Right? So sometimes I feel like an imposter when I stand up before you and preach and teach or, or do whatever I do. But the imposter syndrome isn't based upon my self-perception of, of who God is. It's based upon my self-perception of who I am. But if I just acknowledge that I'm never going to be qualified to teach you, but instead I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be true to what God's called me to, then I remove that. It is also our path to sustain exposure to the divine. That was my aha moment. See, the closer I draw to God, the more aware of what I know is broken in me. And that actually seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But unless you have forgiveness, you can't draw close to God. And that's the moment that it gripped me. Right? John is trying to lay out for us. He's trying to show us that forgiveness is divine. He's trying to expand our view of who God is. Right? But he can't expand our view of who God is if we get stuck on this part here. Sustained exposure. That's what God is for me. God is the sun. He is the moon. He's, our, he's everything. And the closer I draw to him, the more I'm aware of what is wrong with me. You ever, um, you ever put a shirt on, take a quick glance at it, and you walk out at the door, and you don't realize there's like a stain somewhere? I may actually may even have a stain on this one. I don't know, right? But you don't see it. But if you ever go to like a dressing room or a place with lots of light, all of a sudden you look down going, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that was there. God is light. John tells us that. And rather than drawing to the light, our sin wants to draw us back into the darkness. And so John says to us, God is divine. He's the logos. He creates. But he also creates something new. He creates something new. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this statement before. I heard it by Joel Houston at the Catalyst Conference, but he's ripped it off to somebody else, and I couldn't find out who it was. But this statement always kind of echoes in the back of my mind. 
Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Do you know you'll never be good enough for God? I'll never be good enough for God. But if goodness is my metric, forget it. How many people have walked away from faith because they can't forgive themselves, because they can't believe God can forgive them? That's self-deception. That's a very, very small God. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If, if you look in the mirror and you think that's what God is, it's not what God is. Let me close with reimagining Psalm 51. Again, we use Psalm 51. We were talking about it this week in uh, screw tape, and I always, whenever we're doing with screw tape, I'm also having the sermon I'm preparing for Sunday morning in the back of my mind. Psalm 51 is David's song of forgiveness. When he had an affair with Bathsheba, when he killed Bathsheba's husband, and because of Bathsheba and David's relationship, which is sinful, their child died. And David writes Psalm 51, and it's a very famous psalm. I encourage you to go back and reflect on it. But look what he says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do you know, only a Logos God can create. Only a Logos God can create. Only a God who can think with reason and see us for who we are can love us and forgive us. That's a God that David served. That's the God that, that John saw up close. And that's the God that he's trying to convey to the second generation and to us, the 90th generation. God loves you. He is aware of what is broken in you, and yet he still loves you. And I think that is the greatest gift that God can give us. You ever wrestle with self-forgiveness? <clears throat> we all have. But what you have to do is you have to take your self-forgiveness and you have to translate that to divine forgiveness. If we confess our sins, if, then, so our part is if, God's part is then he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that all is repetitive, it's habitual, it's new, it's all these things and more. That's the God that we serve. John's first chapter is to expand who God is so that we can clean and we can seek forgiveness for a sustained relationship with him in the future. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Logos. You are the thought that God had, that you are, we are the thought that you had, and that you forgive us time and time and time again. Lord, please forgive us for having a small view of who you are. Please forgive us for thinking there's something in our lives that you can't forgive. And instead, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would expand who God is in our lives. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to accept your forgiveness so that we, in turn, can forgive ourselves. Lord, please help us to stop listening to the enemy and instead start listening to you. I thank you that John wrote this first chapter because this chapter is my chapter. This chapter is your chapter. This chapter is Jesus the Logos. Jesus is the divine forgiver. And I pray we'd accept that forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen.